Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show. And you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, this week I am joined by Owen Pemberton, the founder of Forbidden Bikes, to talk about his journey through the bike industry, including a fairly lengthy stint as an engineer at Norco that led him to found Forbidden. And there's some interesting stuff going on here because not only is Forbidden one of the companies, maybe the company most strongly known for making high pivot bikes specifically, but they're doing some pretty interesting things and different things with geometry as well. And Owen's got some good thoughts on how he wound up just coming to the various philosophies that have gone into making Forbidden's current bikes. And, well, Owen also teases some upcoming models, plural, from Forbidden and a bunch more. So there's a lot in here. It's a cool one, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, I do want to encourage folks to check out our upcoming Blister Summit this February in Mount Crested Butte. And it's one of the best weeks of the year for us, just getting the whole gang together and whole Blister community together to go skiing, check out a bunch of new gear, have some good panel sessions with folks from around the snow sports industry, and just get to hang out with everyone. It's a great time. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Owen Pemberton. Well, Owen, great to sit down and chat and hear the story about Forbidden. How are you doing and where are you this morning? Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, I'm in Canada. I'm in Courtney, uh, or close to Cumberland, which is um, where we're based in, in uh, Canada on Vancouver Island. It's pretty wet, no snow, so that's good. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah, well, like I said, kind of just excited to sit down and get the rundown on all things forbidden and before we get to forbidden though probably be worth touching at least a little bit on kind of the earlier parts of your journey through the bike industry and uh i think probably most notably your time at norco so where did you kind of make your entry to the world of designing and engineering bikes and kind of how did that all get started for you so i did um I mean, I rode bikes since a very early age. I was, I think I did my first mountain bike race when I was about 11 or 12. Like, I was never particularly successful, but I did that for a number of years when I was younger. Um, and then, so I've been a mountain biker pretty much my whole life as far as that side of things go. And then I was, when I left school, I went um, straight into engineering and I was an aerospace engineer with Rolls-Royce in the UK. That's where I grew up. I did that for 10 years. And then, um, like I say, mountain bikes always been my passion. So um, after a while, I, I managed to take a redundancy, like a voluntary redundancy from Rolls-Royce, which gave me some money to pay off debts, like student debts and everything, moved to Canada just on a bit of a whim sort of, I used to vacation in Whistler pretty much every year. I've done that for a few years and I uh, just wanted to go and 
be a bike bum for a bit. So I moved to Whistler, uh, did two summers, one winter there. At the time, I was working for a Norco dealer in in Whistler. So during that time, I met some of the Norco guys. And through those contacts, it was um, it's actually a weird thing because I, I, I had applied for a job there. Didn't get it. Apparently, I was the second choice, but because I wasn't Canadian, I think that was the sort of thing that tipped it to the other guy. But then that guy ended up meeting, and he, he became the engineering manager at Norco, and he actually tapped me up. It was a little bit of strange coincidence of how these things happened. It was like I'd broken my back in Whistler quite badly. I ended up back in the UK. I just had spinal surgery, and the day after, I got an email from... PJ Hunton at Norco, which just said, do it, do it or something like that. And it was just a link to the job application. So I applied for that. Um, turns out after you've had spinal surgery, you've got quite a bit of time on your hands. So I had some time to just play around designing a bike because I just because I could. So I, just to prove that I can do it. And that was enough to get me the job. So I think about a year after that, I started the job before I was still living in the UK. I was, um, I think it was about, I think I did about four or five months working remote for them over there. So uh, my first couple of bikes were designed there. And then I uh, got on a plane, came over to Canada, got my visa and everything through, through that. And then... I'm Canadian now. Um, yeah, that's sort of that. I was there for seven years, pretty much like my time. There was three of us there at the time. Um, I was I was focused on mountain bikes, so pretty much any full suspension mountain bike that Norco put out during those years, that was from out of my head. And then, yeah, so I did that for seven years. And then... It was, uh, I don't know, I, I think I just, it was at that, that's just a point in life where it was just, and I fancied another change and I looked to do something else. At the time, I didn't particularly, I didn't have my heart set on starting Forbidden or anything like that. I mean, I sort of had the idea, but I, I didn't think, honestly didn't think I'd ever do it. I didn't think I'd, have, I'd be brave enough. Um, Really, when I left, I was thinking I was going to go down the route of um, like a freelance sort of gig and just sort of do something along those lines. But then when I looked into it, I don't know, it didn't really. And it seemed like a seemed like a lot of work, and for some reason, I thought doing this might be less work. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a, that was a silly uh, assumption. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I think that's the sort of Cole's notes of how I ended up here. Yeah, no, that's a good little bit of a rundown and kind of funny to me how certain little pieces of that actually mirror my trajectory a little bit. Also, background as an engineer, worked as one for about a decade before doing this and um, then demolished my knee skiing, was bedridden with that did a few other things in that time downtime, including mocking up a couple of bike designs that haven't actually gotten built yet, but they're still kicking around somewhere on a hard drive. And then, um, in that same period also ended up getting connected with 
this job that I've got now and wound my way into the, the bike world, uh, you know, now reviewing bikes and doing what I'm doing. So uh, <laughs> that little snippet of it's actually got some some parallels there. But anyway, so pretty interesting that you left Norco not necessarily intending to found Forbidden straight away and ended up, uh, well, obviously that changed, but when you left and were kind of considering that freelancing option that you were thinking about and what have you, what made you decide to really go at it with Forbidden, apart from, you know, you, you mentioned thinking that it might actually be easier than hunting for freelance gigs, but I mean, what did you sort of see as being the things that you wanted to do differently with a new company and what gave you the confidence to give it a shot that you actually were onto something that might really work? Yeah, I think like the sort of like looking at it, like it was sort of like, I don't wouldn't say I ever thought it was going to be easy, but it was, I was looking at the options and like having known a few people who have worked like in the, the sort of contractor sort of freelance sort of like side of things over the years both in this industry and in my previous life like i know it it can be good like there's some like you can make a good living doing it that way but you are always sort of like you really your destiny is sort of at the in in the hands of other people really it's like if, if you get a contract or if you get contracts taken away so that side of things didn't sit too well with me and the same time i've always had like this uh, like from a very young age i was a bit conflicted i always found thought i was too creative or too artistic sort of creativity side of things to be a, a really a sort of pure engineer and, and but also a bit too engineering minded to be a good artist so it was like um that's why sort of the role in the bike industry where it's like a lot of companies in the same position that you have, you end up wearing a few hats, like even at my time at Norco, it's like that was the creative side of things. What you want, just like an engineer looking at just how you how to do a very finite part of a bigger picture thing. You are looking at the whole picture of the design and you get to be quite creative with it. So that's, Right, that side of things excited me, but then also looking at like the the ideas of sort of how to build a brand as well as just a product had always intrigued me, and it's something that I thought I'd like to give a go and thought I could do, and I had ideas and sort of when I looked at the bike industry and the way the mountain bike side of the industry has gone over the years, and I I spent a few years attempting not very well on the ad, but attempting to ride BMX and like always loved that scene and looking at sort of BMX and the, the skate sort of influence and how those brands sort of position themselves and present themselves. I just thought there was like, there's some, some brands were, were, were doing it, but the majority of brands had gone for a much more cleaner cut sort of look and it was understandable why. And it was just, something that I felt like I didn't necessarily gel with. So I thought like I had some ideas of just sort of trying to do things a bit, not 
it's not groundbreakingly different, but I just thought I could, like, for me, it's always been like my patterns have been like bikes, sort of art and music. And so like trying to bring those three things together with Forbidden was sort of the goal. Um, and then, yeah, the, I, it wasn't that I really thought I could do like a drastically different bike. I know some people would say what we did with the Druid sort of was, but it wasn't really that idea. It wasn't like I started, oh, I'm going to, and if, if, I, I know people tend to assume this. It's like, oh, I'm going to start a high pivot bike brand. And it's like, I know we lent into that messaging quite heavily, but at the start, I didn't know we were going to be making a high pivot bike. I wanted the main goal from a product standpoint I wanted to do was um, do a really clean job of the geometry that like I'd started bringing to the table at Norco. Like as far as I'm aware, we were one of, if not the first brand to have um, like different rear center lengths for the front center. And, in, in full suspension and in modern bikes, because in the past it was like, if you look way back, it was actually, that was the way bikes were designed, especially when everyone's riding hardtails and full suspension didn't exist. But then it seems like it got dropped. My best guess is when things went to um, more mass manufacture of full suspension bikes, it was deemed it was easier to not have to cut different stay lengths. So we would just make everything the same on the back. Um, uh, but if you really, I'm, I'm a strong believer that if you really want to design a bike correctly, like you should look at the balance that you want to achieve for that bike and then scale that for each size, which is what we do. Um, and I think we, I think we feel quite proud and we try to be quite strong with that messaging is that right now we're the only brand that, that does that like truly scaled sizing. Um, and that, that was the, the primary sort of goal from a product standpoint. That's all I really knew I wanted to do because we, we, we had done it at Norco to an extent, not quite to where I wanted it to be, but I totally understand that I was part of those decisions of why we didn't do it like the, the full, like the correct way of doing it. If you're looking at it purely from a mathematical point of view, uh, I totally understand that. And that's fair play. I mean, like I say, I was part of that decision-making process. Um, but I still thought for myself and for some of the people in the world that they'd probably appreciate it, that we could do it and it would be, yeah, a bit more niche and probably won't sell as many bikes, but it's something that we can do. And just, yeah, that, that was, that was really the, the itch that I wanted to scratch from the product side there. Um, and then, so the high pivot thing came around really from just looking at doing the usual process I would do of going through, like these are the attributes, the right attributes that I want to accomplish and what's the best suspension layout that I can configure to give those, those ride characteristics and also taking in the practicalities of packaging everything and all that. And just the, the high pivot just kept rising to the top every time that I would do that exercise. So that's sort of, why we did it and it, it felt risky at the time because it, i i know like it's we'd had some conversations before about 
doing a trail bike with a high pivot, but it was like, I mean, even in my head, I was like, this is risky. I don't know if people are going to accept it. Um, I thought I can at least afford to build one and try it and see if I can ride it and if it feels good. So like, let's do that. So that's what I did. And then it seemed like at the same time, I've always been, if, if you can design a product and you really like it and it does what you want it to do and there's a good chance there's going to be a number of people around the world that feel the same way. So you're still going to sell some of them. So it was sort of that thinking that, okay, we don't know. I don't know how big this is going to be. I honestly thought we'd be selling a couple of hundred bikes a year and that would be it. And maybe have a couple of employees and we'd be sweet and we could just ride bikes in the hills and it would be good. Like, so that's sort of the goal. So that's all that really was at the start. Yeah. Well, a lot to dig into there. And we'll, I'd definitely like to come back around to the rear center bit in a few, but guys, before we, we get back into that in more detail, I mean, would be curious to hear just a bit more about what you meant when you say that as you sort of dug into what you wanted to do with suspension performance and kinematics, I think, as you put it, high pivot kept rising to the top and what particularly about that layout made you sort of feel like that was the right direction to be going, particularly kind of as you touched on there, that uh, doing it on a comparatively short travel trail bike, like the Druid was a, and still kind of is to maybe a little bit lesser extent, but to some extent, a less common thing to this point. You know, there are obviously kind of a greater proliferation of high pivot bikes in the market, broadly speaking, but they're still generally centered around dh and longer travel enduro bikes rather than shorter travel trail ones and so yeah just i guess tell us more why go that route so i think so so you have to like wind back the clock a bit like if you like way back when i was living in whistler like i had my first sort of experience with sort of what an axle path, like a drastic axle path can do. Like I had a Canfield Jedi that I bought. I just happened to bump into um, one of the Canfield brothers. I'm trying to remember which one it was uh, right now. I'm so bad with names these days. Um, on, on a chairlift in Whistler and we got chatting and we just, I ended up buying a Jedi. Um, and that was, it was an interesting bike. I think it had quite a steep head angle, strangely, and it was, but the speed that that bike would generate was insane. And what it could carry through rough stuff was crazy. So it was, it was like, in some ways, yeah, you have all this speed, but then it was quite a steep, tall bike at the time. Um, but that has sort of opened my eyes to like, okay, this is what an axle path could do. So when I started at Norco, the first bike I designed was like the first generation of the Orem with 26 inch wheels. And that had, um, we didn't want to have an idler pulley on the bike. Like that was a decision. Like there was nobody really doing like big axle path bikes then. Um, but there was always a goal to have as much axle path as we can squeeze out of that design while still keeping everything else within the suspension um, configuration in check. So, and that bike, uh, I still, that's one of the favorite bikes that I've ever designed. It was that bike rode amazing. Then when it came to the second generation, we moved to 27.5 wheels. That was always a bike that I didn't enjoy as much as I thought I would. 
And I think a lot of it was down to the fact that you lost a good chunk of the axle path because if you go to bigger wheels, then if you want to keep chain growth in check, you have to you have to have less axle path. It's just you have to have less chain growth because you get more chain growth because the bottom bracket is lower compared to the like in, with with reference to the axle positions. So and then going to 29-inch wheels has made that even worse. So that's one of the sort of big things that I think for me has pushed why idler pulleys in a way have become more important for any bike over the years because we've gone to bigger wheels. So a lot of people just don't even think that those two things even have a relationship to each other. Um, idler pulleys in itself on a trail bike, you couldn't put one on until well, a good few years ago now, but when I started designing bikes, you couldn't have an idler pulley on a trail bike because you had a front trailer and they don't work. So it was only after sort of SRAM did their thing and pushed one by, which was huge. And that was a great thing for every, every mountain biker that, that um, sort of opened the door to be able to put an idler pulley on a bike that you pedal because you don't need a front trailer anymore. So that had sort of got the cogs whirring and it was, a sort of similar timing to I think Common Sal had sort of shocked a few people by coming out with the first generation of their high pivot um, Supreme and that was sort of doing really well at the time on the World Cup circuit so it sort of showed that okay uh, yes having an axle path is a good thing can be a good thing if the bike is designed around, around it um, but there was still nobody doing it on a trail bike or an enduro bike or anything like that. But it was it was a possibility now. So that was something that I've been thinking about and have been playing around with with just sort of ideas and in CAD and just seeing what would work and what kind of um, uh, characteristics you can get out of that. And one of the big things is that it's like you take the actual path out of it, but one of the nice things about having an idler pulley is you have way more freedom there with how to control the um, the anti-squat or well the 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 amount of anti-squat that's driven by chain tension like so that's not the only thing there so um and then sort of when you look at a high pivot bike in itself like you do get an anti-squat effect just from the physical layout of the suspension members more than you would with a, a lower if you want to simplify things to a single pivot and if you have a high pivot or a low pivot and nothing else is going on that high pivot will exhibit a bigger anti-squat response than the low pivot so if you start to put everything all of that together it's like you get you can develop a bike that has better pedaling characteristics with a high pivot and a idler pulley than a bike without those things because you can you can keep pedaling the bike won't squat won't have that happening so your anti-squat is working and doing its job but when you're pedaling you're not introducing a lot of chain tension into the system which is stopping your suspension from working so you can have an active suspension while getting the pedaling characteristics that's just simply not possible if you don't have a higher pivot of some some configuration or an axle path of some configuration and, um, and an idler pulley. 
So that was sort of why that kept rising to the top. Obviously, the sort of elephant in the room there is you're adding, adding an idler pulley, you're adding a sprocket into the system. That is that going to generate any negatives on the pedaling efficiency of the bike? So there was always that side of things. It was just well, how is it going to ride? So for me, the best way was to just like let's ride something. At the time, I had a high pivot orm sitting around in the garage, so I put a big uh, dropper post on it and just took it for a pedal. <laughs> see, and I was just like, well, this doesn't really to my to what I can feel on the trail. It's it's negligible if anything is there. So it was like, okay, this has legs. Then, like, if I'm okay with that, then other people are going to be. I mean, we're not roadies. We're not measuring every last watt. So it's the advantages far outweigh any disadvantage there. So um, that had got me sort of keen on it. But then I still wanted to do that process. And like I say, it was like I wanted to do the geo story and, uh, not story, but I wanted to achieve the geo that I really wanted to do. And part of that was, and this has always been an important part of me, of my designs, because I am vertically challenged. I have quite short legs. Um, and so um, I ride bikes on the smaller side and having a rear end that was appropriately short on small bikes, but also having rear ends that are appropriately long on bigger bikes is very important. And it's it's another added bonus of you you move the the configuration of the suspension members around and you don't have a chainstay trying to get through the gap of tire and chainring, which is sort of that's why fifty five mil chain lines are a thing these days is because people are trying to get more room in that area. It's always been a constraining factor on how short you can make rear centers. So all of that led to like the the geo for the druid like the original one and the new one it's tweaked a little bit but we still have some of the shortest static uh chainstay lengths of any small bikes that are out there um and that is because if you truly want to scale that weight balance and have equal ride characteristics or as equal as you can get across the sizes then you need to be able to get especially on a bike like that which doesn't have a long fork and a really slack head angle so if you want to keep that balance in check, then the back end needs to be on the shorter side. So there was a number of reasons. Hopefully that is in a way that makes sense to people. It's like that. It's like, but those things just kept, like I say, kept rising to the top. But this just has these advantages that other designs can't get. So, like, and again, without. When you're not uh, having like, okay, well, we've got to try and sell X number of bikes to X number of people. It's like you just starting from scratch, just looking at, okay, this is the bike I want to ride. And I'm not really aiming to sell a given number at that point. It was like, okay, well, let's give this a go. Right. The bit about the high pivot helping facilitate really short chain stays is interesting in a detail I hadn't really thought about in too much detail myself kind of i'm not super tall but i'm six feet tall the bikes that i've designed for myself I've, I've never really been looking at making a full size range or anything i've always just been thinking about making what i would want and so you know not looking at very short chain stays for a bike size for me and hadn't really thought about that part too much but it makes sense that you would just 
open up a little bit more room to not have the chain coming out right there and rubbing on the tire and what have you. And if you're trying to go super short, so that's a, a cool note that I hadn't really given a lot of consideration to. It's always been a constraining factor that it's that you've got your chain ring. If you go to a certain length on the rear center, your tire will be sitting right alongside the chain ring. And then depending on your chain line, you don't have a lot of room to put, whether it's metal or carbon or whatever you're using, you don't have a lot of room to put something through there. So something has to give, like it's usually tire clearance is close on that side and you'll have very minimal material. You'll be working on the minimum you can get away with for the strength that you need to squeeze through that sort of sort of pinch point. Um, but all of a sudden, if you go to like, if you look at the original Druid, like a high single pivot, like essentially it's like an elevated chain stay when you look at back at 90s bikes and that's what it is. You, you're going up and over that area and allowing you to tuck the, the wheel in closer, which on a bike predominantly using 29 inch wheels is a huge factor to the overall design package of the bike. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And well, yeah, since we're kind of getting into that now on the subject of the rear center lengths, I mean, sort of a big part of what you've been describing and something that is to my knowledge, still unique to forbidden is as you've described it, that I've seen sort of truly proportional chainstay lengths. There are plenty of companies that are doing some amount of variation in their chainstay lengths across the size range, but your bikes have chainstays that are sort of the ratio of front center to rear center remains constant across the size range, which is unusual. It requires much larger steps in chainstay sizing than most other folks are doing to achieve that. And, um, you know, certainly that math checks out and I, you know, follow the thinking behind it that you're attempting to keep the way that the wheels are weighted proportional across the size range and have the same balance for very different size riders on very different size bikes. The bit that I've not fully gotten my head around is sort of, it seems to me like that's making a little bit of an assumption that sort of the center of mass of the riders on average, obviously on a bike, it's moving dramatically. So you can't really treat it as being anything close to static, but something like centered over the bottom bracket kind of if you take sort of the range of positions on average right because if you know obviously this isn't true but if you pretend for a moment that the rider center of mass is generally much farther forward just to pick a random direction example then you're kind of using the bottom bracket as the reference point for what you're scaling around no longer makes sense um because it's, it's sort of an arbitrary reference that doesn't have much relation in this hypothetical where you're riding with your center of mass over the handlebars, um, which again, unrealistic. But um, so I'm curious, kind of, did you at some point do any kind of analysis or testing to kind of figure out where you kind of think a realistic overall center of mass is to kind of validate that or... What was the thinking kind of behind that whole system? Like I said, dynamically on the trail, as you're riding, your sense of mass is moving around. Right, immensely. Um, yeah. But we are loading the bike through our feet and our hands, so you know those points. Um, 
your most of the the loading if you're riding if your riding style is pretty good most of that loading is through your feet you're you're actively weighting the bike through your feet um so that's sort of where the thinking is there it's like like you are doing most of your like your efforts into gaining traction and pushing the bike into the ground you're usually doing it three feet you should be doing it three feet uh, a little bit through your hands but mostly through your feet so if that's and i mean it's such a difficult thing to quantify like because it is such a dynamic process when you are riding a bike you're not just sitting there it's not like not saying that it's super simple on a road bike but it's not like you are just in a consistent position well the majority of the ride you're not you are moving around even on climbing if you're on a technical climb you are moving around so you have to make some assumptions and our assumption is that the majority of the ride handling that is important is made through your feet um and what we've done and what i've tried to do over the years is to sort of look at getting good feedback from riders on different sized bikes and try and hone in not tell people numbers try and hone in on how things are working on the trail which is i mean it's difficult but it's like you can't this the problem with anything like this is i can't jump on a, an xl and ride it and say oh yeah it still works on this size because i'm not tall enough to ride that bike so you have to have um different people looking at things differently and then you then it comes into like different personal biases and different riding styles and is the terrain the same everything like that so you have to like it's it's a very hard thing to say black and white this this and this this and i mean that's why i don't i don't like to say that what we're doing is right like and what other people are doing is wrong like i just what we're doing this is what we're doing and this is the way we're doing it and we think it works for us and we all ride bikes and um we got a range of different people of different sizes within the company and we think we make bikes that work for all of us it seems that way when you talk to people about how they ride their bikes and the feedback you get from like generally you can have someone riding an XL and someone riding a small and the feedback is very very similar of how often they're and it's often they're quite surprised because I think the, the ends of the spectrum is the people that maybe question what we're doing um because that's the extremes and that's where the brands are maybe not getting to and they're maybe like oh is this gonna ride well and then they come away and they're quite surprised that it does and that itself is sort of like nice validation i mean it's not going to work for everybody it's like i said there is different riding styles there's different biases people like different things people ride different terrain so but that's the great thing there's a lot of bike brands out there making bikes in different ways and with different ride characteristics and it's like another thing is like i've tried a lot of those bikes and i don't like them <laughs> so like for my the way i ride a bike and and just happens that we've got a bunch of people on our staff that feel the same so but they ride our bikes and they really do like them so we know we're onto something i'm not going to say that it is the this is the perfect way to do it and everyone should be doing it the same because that that's not a great way of doing things yeah i like that answer and i mean like you said it's good to have a variety of options out there for people to be able to get on something that works for them people have different preferences different terrain so on and so forth and so yeah there's not 
there's no single right way to do anything really you know it's yeah and we we find we get we get very consistent feedback on all of the designs that we do from people on different sizes of bikes and we're sort of like where we're at now with that design philosophy is you basically start the first thing we talk about is okay for this bike and for the intended use of this bike and where we expect people to be riding it how they're going to be riding it what is that balance that we want to achieve what is the ratio between front and rear center that's where we start because we've got experience now of different front and rear center ratios and how they feel on the trail and so we start there and then we we set out the geo and then that's that's the most important thing and then we fit the suspension system around that and make sure that works and the whole package is there and then that's how we go but it starts with that ratio but I mean, that's a, the the thing is, I don't want to get stuck in saying that that is like, like what you see with the launch of the Supernaut is, and this won't be the only bike that we have with the system like it, is that we have, when we were looking at like that bike in particular and sort of the, like the specifics of making a tool for getting top to bottom fastest but also doing that on different terrain with different riders it became apparent to us that it's like just drawing a line and saying okay this ratio is going to be perfect for everybody or is going to be close enough to perfect for everybody on this bike for this application wasn't quite that simple so then we were looking okay well what adjustments can we put in and we see this a lot with a lot of downhill bikes now seem to be going for more adjustments, but we wanted to make sure that whatever we did was really useful. And that's why we came up with the system, which we, we call it bias adjust because it does affect the weight bias of the bike. Um, it's not a great name, but it's just, we have to put something there. Um, and why we have such large jumps there of like plus or minus 10 millimeters is like, you can't really do that with flip chips especially with like what UDH has brought into the back end of bikes, which is, is great in itself, but it's like, does make that thing difficult. Um, but we felt like that is like, you've got a significant change there that does truly change the handling of the bike. And that, uh, uh, we joked, uh, like not that long ago, we were actually joking around, like it's sort of a bit being like tapas. <laughs> And you've got all these different dropouts that are for different people and you, you can try a bit of each and, but like people are like some things better than others and uh, and so what we look at it is like different riders will probably have a preference um we're actually finding it's more and more that it's it's all of our riders have a similar preference but on different terrain uh, so they've used a different so and it sort of makes sense that well, it does make sense that you would run like a shorter rear end so you have a more um, rear bias on the bike uh, when you're riding a steeper track because naturally that's going to put more weight on the front of the bike because if the majority of the track is steeper also when you look at like a lot of those steeper tracks they tend to have like crooksy corner moves and everything like that where having a shorter rear end is, is a bit nicer because you can sort of drag it around like using your body weight so that lends itself into that whereas and then you get you look at another some of the tracks that are like have a little less gradient to them generally they're, they're a bit faster they have like big flat out corners where it's like 
drifty and you, you want to have a more centered bias on the bike. So then that's where the long dropouts come become really useful because you do you just shift your body mass like forwards within the two contact patches. And that I think is the best way of tuning um, the handling of a bike. And it's in the years that I've spent working with downhillers, like they tend to want to do that anyway but in the past they've always done it with suspension it's like they'll they'll run a bit more spring or damping on the rear and a bit less on the front to shift everything onto the front wheel or they'll do the opposite to shift it onto the back wheel and i'm like but when you do that you're sacrificing your suspension performance but they find the actual the grip that they get is like that is the the key um like that's the most important thing so they'll sacrifice suspension performance to get that weight side of traction but i'm like but you can get better traction overall if your suspension is also working optimally so let's keep the suspension out of those conversations let's tune the geometry to get a good weight balance and then tune the suspension separately and I, like we're not the only people doing that that's what it seems like quite a few of the smart brands out there are doing with their downhill bikes and um, yeah, I think it's a it's a good way of doing it. Does it have a place on every bike? I don't think so. Like, like I think for a, a lightweight, a lighter weight trail bike like a Druid, it's like a system like that adds a lot of weight. Doesn't make sense. Um, you can make assumptions and you can come up with a geometry that works for most people in most places for that intended use. It doesn't have to be a specific, but when you get to like that finer end of performance with downhill racing and enduro racing then those things become useful yep that all makes a lot of sense and yeah so i guess well you kind of touched on it a little bit there but the supernaut just launched a little while back your dh bike that you've been seeing teasers of for a while but it's all much more official now and well i guess where i kind of wanted to go with this is that with first the well, the Supernaut prototypes were the first bike we saw from you guys out in the wild with the newer suspension layout that you're doing, the Trifecta V2 with um, four-bar virtual pivot as opposed to the high single pivot you had on the first Druid and the Dreadnought. And then the Druid V2 actually launched with it, and then now the Supernauts followed suit. Tell us a bit about that evolution in the suspension layout that you're going for and why you've made those changes i'm assuming decreasing anti-rise on the longer travel bikes especially is a big part of the thinking but maybe i'm wrong tell me more yeah the anti-rise side of things is a is like the it's the big key for those designs and it's somewhat unique in that like you you can have a fairly significant amount of anti-rise early in the travel and then it drops really low when it goes deeper into the travel depending on your exact arrangement like but you, most designs that with a similar arrangement are going to have very similar um, sort of characteristics there and that is it's if you think about it for a ride characteristic it's it's a it's a really good thing to have on the trail in that way is that um over the years i've, I've learned that having some brake influence, some amount of anti-rise is a good thing. Um, bikes with really low, I find you're under, especially under heavy braking 
uh, your body mass is just being thrown so far over the front of the bike like you get you really start to struggle with fork dive and rear end traction things like that so having you know the anti-rise there sort of helps i mean it, if you look at the simplistic way with a, with a single pivot of just having a generally high anti-rise amount it it works well especially if you're like disciplined with your braking let's say if you're if you're good um with your braking habits then you can really get um get a use to it and, and you can learn to use it on the track um it does have its negatives especially if you're dragging the brakes and whether that's just from poor sort of uh, habits or whether it's from just if you're riding a trail that just necessitates that then the negative there is that you'll see like like the suspension can start to pack up and the suspension gets harsh and it's not able to do its job and absorb impacts and that's when you start to feel like it's sort of in a way it's like kicking back a bit and the suspension like it's essentially locking up because you're getting so deep into your travel you're getting so much um force pushing back on the suspension that it's not overcoming the the impacts coming into the suspension aren't overcoming that force so then essentially your bike's turned into a hardtail and i think that's what people generally think is brake jack on older single pivots it's not really because that i don't know if there's any designs out there that have a brake jack motion um what we see is a it's a squat motion under braking but that helps keep the chassis stable so the um the four bar that we're using now is great because it has the you have that characteristic when you're high up in the travel uh, so if you think about it like uh, where it comes like sort of obvious when you talk to people about it is like you're in a bike park you're heading down like you're just macking down a trail and you're coming up to a corner you go to just dump some speed uh, like you don't want your fork diving or your weight going over the front wheel just when you're coming into a loose blown out corner that's a bad thing to happen so you want your bike to sort of you want your chassis of your bike to stay relatively stable so if you've got anti-rise at that time then the bike does that uh, when you're skidding down something really steep and tech and you're on the brakes a lot because you just have to be like your gravity's taken over like you don't want your, that's when you don't want your suspension packing down so having the anti-rise characteristics that our v2 designs have is good on the trail um why the original bikes didn't do it i just couldn't figure out how to package it like i said this the geometry was the primary goal and to achieve the geometry that i want to achieve the only way that i know i've, you know, I've ever figured out how to do it is that we have the bottom bracket has to be free of the suspension system so you can move the bottom bracket around within the front triangle uh, in relation to the, the suspension pivot placements um so that meant if you look at the, the i believe the antidote dark matter was the first bike to use a design similar to this i don't think there was anyone in the past that was using anything the same um that had a concentric bottom bracket pivot which of course if you do that then you can't achieve the geometry that we want to achieve uh, a couple of other ways i tried to get the layout to work and it just i couldn't get the back end short enough to do the geometry for on the smaller sizes so 
it was something that it was taking a lot of time. I just thought maybe this, like I need more time or it's not possible. Like I'll come back to it. Every time I tried to package it above the bottom bracket, things just didn't work with the rest of the ride characteristics. Um, that was probably the only plus side to the pandemic was that we had a bunch of time <laughs> where we was, couldn't really buy parts to sell, but we, we had time so we could work on designing bikes. Um, and at similar timing to that, we just brought on, which was a big move for us, we brought on a second engineer, uh, Ollie Blight, who you've seen some of our stuff we put out there, really talented designer, amazing guy on a bike. So he sort of all of a sudden we doubled our engineering capacity <laughs> and uh, we had we had time. So I was sort of plugging away at trying to just package everything there and I've already got a certain way down there and then, yeah, we just had the time to do it. But what we decided to do was work on how can we configure this for all of the bikes that we want to sell. Um, so we went through an exercise of designing multiple platforms all at the same time. Um, um, we haven't released them all yet. And for a small brand like us, it is basically money that ties up that and we can only open a certain amount of tooling at any given time. So we're just sort of working our way through them right now. But that was the challenge we set ourselves was to design a suite of bikes using the, basically the same suspension layout um one of the like there was some what i think is really cool i know a lot of people probably won't but there's some cool things we wanted to achieve as well with that was just making like ensuring that we had like part commonality with like shafts and bearings and things like that across all of our platforms which as we move forward something that we will shout about a bit probably the only people who care is bike mechanics but it's it's a cool thing there um but yeah, we, that was what we set ourselves up to do and we managed to do it. And so, yeah, like it is a step forward on the, other than the anti-rise, there's not a huge difference in ride characteristics from the V1 to the V2. Uh, essentially, that's what we were setting out to do was when we asked people what we could do to improve Druid and Dreadnought, there wasn't a lot. Like it was mostly, especially for Druid was centered around losing the, necessity of a, a lower guide which is another reason why we went back to the four bar so rewind that back yeah to remove the necessity for a lower chain guide we had to improve the amount of chain ring wrap like chain wrap on the chain ring um to have chain retention because especially on the smaller sizes with the way that we configure things the on the V1 bikes, the idle pulley is so far forwards. Like if you look at a small V1 Druid, like the chain from the idle pulley to the um, chain ring runs very steep, depending on the size of the chain ring, it's almost vertical. Um, so you don't get, without a lower guide, you don't get a lot of chain ring wrap. So we found in testing that on smaller sizes, it was only really a problem Again, something I think people don't realize the only real problems with climbing, like under heavy torque uh, instances, that like if you're in a granny gear and trying to really get yourself up something steep, you'd throw the chain, which is a very unfortunate time to throw a chain. <laughs> so you don't want that happening. So that's why the, the first generation of bikes have the lower chain guides. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we could 
um, at least for the Druid, not have a lower chain guide. Um, derailer capacity comes into that as well, which is why sort of Dreadnoughts, I think, will always have a lower chain guide. Um, but so part of that was the like, so a simple thing is we need to move that idler pulley back. So if it was a single pivot, you need to move the main pivot back along with that idler pulley to make that happen. If you do that, the anti-rise gets higher. The amount of anti-rise gets higher quite quickly. So then you get to a point of it's no longer useful, it's more of a problem. So that's like, all right, fine, we've got to look at something different. So then it's like, okay, let's, let's bring out some old stuff that I was working on years ago and see if we can figure out how to make that work. So that's sort of, yeah, the roundabout of how we got to where we're at. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, a lot of little details to come together and make it all happen. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like, yeah, I think sometimes, uh, I'm sure a lot of other people in the industry, in, in any industry that are designers and engineers, you, sort of, you sometimes get a little frustrated with the way that sort of the general public or media or whatever glosses over some of these details that you think are extremely important and why you did something. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, if people are doing their jobs right, there is always a lot of these little things that you have to think about that go into the making. It's not just, oh, I want to do that. I want to have a, I want to have a high pivot because it's trendy or whatever, or to be different. It's like, so I've had people say that to me and it's like, no, <laughs> it's like really that's not, it's very far from the reason of why we did it. Yeah. Well, a lot of really good information in there. Appreciate it. Maybe shooting in the dark here, but uh, anything you are willing to tease yet about the upcoming bikes that you mentioned at least a little bit there? Well, I mean, I'm sure, pretty sure people can guess what, what's going to be next for us. Um, right. One of them seems relatively predictable. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Um yeah, that, that'll be a next year thing. Like it's, it's again, it's timing um, for us. Like I say, small company, limited resources. We've got to do what we can do, um, but we're pretty excited about that. I think that's going to be a big a big deal for us next year. Uh, yeah, other than that, we've got a few things we're working on that we can't really share. Like we've got, we got some things that I think will surprise people. Some things, yeah. We've got, we got a couple of things we're cooking up. Um, all on the same sort of founding principles. It's, yeah, geo ride handling is sort of what we, that's what we want to do. That's what, I'm not saying that other people don't, but that's where we stake our flag ground. Like we want to try and do that to the best of our ability. So, yeah, well, looking forward to seeing what you're cooking up there and appreciate you taking the time to chat again, Owen. This has been fun and just good insight into what you're up to. So very much appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being interested. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your preferred podcast player to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Owen for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.